Welcome to Woven. It's good to see all of you here this Sunday morning. We are continuing our series, Hashtag Daniel Plan, and it's appropriate for the new year. Uh, new year, new you, and I've been speaking with some people about New Year's resolutions. Uh, I'm surprised there are a number of people here that have already been undertaking their own Daniel plans. My own Daniel plan will begin this Wednesday, uh, and uh, on Sunday night we're grilling, so uh, just consider that your cheat meal for the week, your cheat meal for the week. But um, I know for me, uh, I'm 41 years old, and uh, as I can feel things slowing down a little bit, uh, my sugar intake, my fat intake, and a lot of these things, uh, I know it affects my spirit. So this Daniel plan is not just about spirituality, it's about physicality. And I've spent time making a case that we can't just take care of our souls, but we also need to take care of our bodies. The notion that we can just take care of our souls and not take care of our bodies, uh, is a, it's a dichotomy, it's a false notion. It means that in the end, we will still suffer uh, depression, we'll still suffer uh, illness and weakness, our spirits will not be nourished if we're not taking care of our bodies. And so I spent some time making a case for that. I also believe that whether you choose to start dieting or fasting or whatever that looks like, I believe that is going to pave the way for revival. And my personal hope is that this series is not just about shedding a couple of weights or getting just physically healthy, but that it will open the door for a revival in our church. Hopefully, our town hall meeting after the service today, we're going to go right into it pretty quickly, uh, will also open the door to facilitate, greatly facilitate the move of the Holy Spirit in our church. And so, today we're going to continue in this series, and I'm going to talk straight up from the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 1. And um, if you look in your notes, there are eight life lessons from Daniel 1. We're not going to get through all of them today. I assure you, it's going to be... It's going to be, uh, it's not going to be a super long sermon. Um, but these eight life lessons, I'll get through b- about half of them this morning, and then uh, we'll finish off the second half after the retreat. Uh, real quick, how many of you know what, we- what this Wednesday is? Valentine's Day, is that correct? It's, I was thinking Ash Wednesday. So it actually, it usually does not fall on the same day, does it? Okay. Fat Tuesday. So I'm surprised. Um, I didn't realize they were on the same day this year. But uh, this Wednesday is Ash Wednesday. And so it's the beginning of the season of Lent. And um, any goals that you have, you have three days to fatten up before you start your Ash Wednesday plan, your season of Lent plan. Um, you know, I, I had uh, the Ryder kids over last night and with my kids, and I think I ate enough queso for about four months. So I'm ready to start like today, ready to start. The Daniel plan. Let's dive right into Daniel chapter 1. Daniel chapter 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and he besieged it. 
the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. Now, interesting, God allowed Judah to lose that battle. So the Lord gave the king of Judah into Nebuchadnezzar's hand along with the vessels of the house of God, and he brought them into the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and he brought the vessels into the treasury of his God. We start off the book of Daniel with a little bit of backstory. And here I'm going to do a little bit of history. This goes all the way back in time, 2,000 years ago, and 600 years before Jesus. 600 years before Jesus. And the nation of Israel was a nation divided. It's kind of like, uh, how many of you have been watching the Olympics right now, the Winter Olympics? And we've all been learning a little bit about Korea. And Korea, as you know, is South Korea and North Korea. It is a divided nation due to civil war. It was the same with Israel. Israel started out as one nation uh, under God, quite literally. But then, due to civil war, they became the northern kingdom, Israel, and then the southern kingdom, Judah. And over the years, as the nation, as the two countries got weaker and weaker, as they compromised more and more, the surrounding countries became stronger and began overpowering them. Israel was the first to go, so dash Israel to pieces. It got, it got overtaken, and Judah witnesses this. And as they witness this giant monster knocking on their door, Babylon, King Nebuchadnezzar, and as they witness what's about to happen, the king at that time, Zedekiah, basically became a servant to King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. How many of you finished your taxes this year? Glad I finished mine. And my goodness, the government takes a lot, don't they? Well, in the case of King Zedekiah, he had to pay a heavy, heavy tax to Babylon. Why? Because it was Babylon's way of saying, we're going to keep you in order we're going to keep you in line. And Babylon crushed, um, crushed Israel. In fact, Babylon installed King Zedekiah. They said, you're going to be the king of this nation, but really you're, going to be, you're, you're just going to be a puppet king. You're going to be really a servant of Babylon. Zedekiah didn't really go along with this plan. He was 21 years old. And when you're 21 years old, you say, I can take on the world. And Zedekiah says, no, I'm not going to do this. I want to revolt. And Zedekiah, together with his cabinet, he sits down and says, this is what we're going to do. This is what we're going to do. <laughs> we're going to get together with Egypt. We're going to go down to Egypt and enlist their help and make an alliance with them. And then we're going to see if we can revolt against Nebuchadnezzar as allies. And there was one person in Zedekiah's cabinet that said, oh, king, this is a dumb idea. Don't do it. And his name was Jeremiah. And Jeremiah has an entire book in the Old Testament devoted to him. Jeremiah was an important prophet. He was also an advisor to King Zedekiah. And he said, this is not a good idea. We were slaves in Egypt. Why would we go back to Egypt for help? No, don't do this. Go along with this. Even the misfortune we're experiencing, Babylon is God's tool. But Zedekiah didn't listen to Jeremiah. And instead, he decided to make an alliance with Pharaoh Hophra, the king of Egypt. And Nebuchadnezzar watched this from afar, and he said, that is an act of rebellion. And he pressed a button, and it unleashed the hordes of Babylon. And they surrounded the city of Jerusalem. They surrounded the city entirely. 
Back then, cities were very different from what they are today. Cities were enclosed inside huge walls. And so as they saw the armies of Babylon approaching, they said, raise the gate, raise the gate. And they put the gates up, and then they locked everything down, and archers were on the walls, and then it's like, burr, 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 burr. <laughs> and then they start laying, laying siege, and then you see the battering rams hit the walls, and people are inside all scared, and the children are downstairs, and they're huddling, and then you see the dust falling down, and this lasts for at least a year, at least a year. Some scholars say as long as two years. In the meantime, food runs out. And horrible things are happening. When food runs out, people start eating strange things. And people get scared. People start dying. And King Zedekiah, young and brash, at this point says, I'm not so brave anymore. And what does he do? As the city's about to fall, he finds a back door. And he says, I'm going to make a run for it. Who's in it with me? And he makes a run for it. Knowing full well the city is surrounded by the armies of Babylon. And as he runs, it's kind of like football. You're just trying to break through the line. Except King Zedekiah was no football player. And on the plains of Jericho, they catch him. They tackle him. And they pin him down. And they watch him. They make him watch. They make him watch as they bring his sons, his boys, out from the city. And stand his children in front of him. And they hold his eyelids open. As one by one, now he was, in his, he was a young man. His sons couldn't have been very old, as old as our own children right here. And one by one, what do you think they did? In front of his own eyes, they killed his children. And as he watched and as he cried and as he screamed, and as, his, as the tears burned his eyes and as he saw and witnessed his entire posterity right before him wiped out, and the love of his life, his children, all killed. Then they made, they, they, to add insult to injury, they blinded him. They gouged his own eyes out. And then they tied him up. And then they brought him to Babylon. And did they kill him? No. It would have been better if they just took him out, right? But they didn't. And for the rest of his life, he had to live as a prisoner in Babylon. A horrible way to live. The city of Jerusalem was crushed. The temple, the holy temple, Solomon's temple, which was recognized as one of the wonders of the world, even the queen of Egypt would recognize that, utterly destroyed. Now, there's a reason why I share all of this. I share all of this to provide background context because we're going to dive into the book of Daniel, and I'm going to speak in particular to young people you see, scholars believe that Daniel and his compadres here, they were about 14, 15 years old. Who is 14, 15 here? Peter. 14? 15. 14, 15 years old. Right? Autumn, you're 16, right? You're about that age. And so you've got these young people who are living during this hardship. And of course, there's this great book named after him, Daniel. He's a great hero of the faith, Daniel. But the thing is, this is the first lesson I'm going to speak to young people. The first lesson is this. Life will not order itself perfect, perfectly for you to succeed. Life will not be perfect for you to succeed. It is adversity, adversity that made Daniel. The whole book of Daniel takes place in the context of these first 
two verses. These were not the best of times. These were the worst of times. This is the context. And your story, your story, in fact, your adversity may be exactly what you need in order to succeed. Let me say that one more time. The adversity in your life may be the exact ingredient you need to succeed. That might seem like a contrary message. We need to be born with a silver spoon in our mouth. We need to have everything set up for us. I, for one, do not believe that Daniel was born. I think Daniel was made. Daniel was made. Now, let's talk more about this here as we continue on in verse 3. And so the king, King Nebuchadnezzar, orders Ashpenaz, the chief of his officials, to bring in some of the sons of Israel, including some of the royal family and of the nobles, youths, youths. In other words, it's very likely and possible that Daniel and his friends were part of the nobility. Okay, fair enough. Not only were they nobility, they had no defect. They were good-looking, showing intelligence in every branch of wisdom. I'm watching the Olympics right now, and you know, you think of Olympians as brutes, like they, they, they're ogres, <sighs> except all these Olympians are like models. They're so good-looking. It's not fair. You're a jock, you're good-looking, and you're smart. What's, what's up with that? And they have intelligence in every branch of wisdom, endowed with understanding and discerning knowledge, and they had ability to serve in the king's court. Literally, that translates, they had, to, they had the strength to stand before the king. Well, that sounds like they had everything kind of set up for them. Life for them was perfect. You know, it's not just the Olympics. It's like the Super Bowl. We're watching the Super Bowl, and we're like, yeah, football players, they can't be that smart. Except they have to memorize stacks of plays, huge playbooks before every game. And it takes intelligence to do that. So we're like kind of confounded now. Okay, so smart, strong. What was the other one? Good looking. It's not fair. What, what an unfair world that we live in. And in high school, you kind of like, you know, I know what it's like to be in high school. You know, well, those guys got the letter jacket, you know. I'm just going to be kind of the cool, sulking kid in the corner, you know, that just smolders at everybody because I'm just not like them. And we say, life is such that it's not fair that people either have it made or they don't have it made, and I just don't have it made. But that flies in the face of everything we're talking about because Daniel and his friends did not have it made. We say, well, you're Daniel. You're nobility. You're good-looking, man. You're a stud. You're a jock. You've got everything going for you. You're educated. You play football, man. And Daniel would look at you with his steely gaze in his eyes, and he'd say, I'm not lucky. You think it's lucky? You think it's lucky to see your people eating, eating their own children? You think it's lucky for me to recognize that I might have my life on the line when Nebuchadnezzar took all of my cousins and maybe even my brothers some scholars believe that, that Daniel may have been a son of Zedekiah. You think I'm lucky to witness my city go through this? You think I'm lucky to be starving the last? You think I'm lucky to live through a holocaust? And that's what it was. For the Jews, it was a holocaust. It was a horrific event. And he says, you think I'm lucky. 
And I'll tell you that I was not happy to be torn away from my family when my city was torn down, to be dragged to a foreign land somewhere I didn't even want to go. No, I didn't want to be Daniel, but I had to become Daniel. The adversity of my circumstance made me. So don't tell me I am who I am because I'm lucky. Because who you are is not determined whether you were born who you are or whether who you are is determined by how you will make your life and what you will do with the first two verses of your own life, whether it's good or bad, what you do with your adversity determines who you will be. Psychologists these days are talking about the difference between a fixed mindset and a growth mindset. And the fixed mindset says, well, kind of like I said a couple of weeks ago, well, Zach, where's where's Zach? Zach, you know you're going to play for the Philadelphia Eagles in 10 years. You know, my crystal ball says so. And a fixed mindset says, well, that's what I'm going to be. I don't have to do anything. It's just going to happen. The growth mindset says it doesn't happen without work. You think Michael Jordan was birthed out of his mother's womb wearing a Bulls jersey? You think LeBron came out just wearing Cavs gear and he's like ready to go right out of the womb. The person who recognizes their adversity and recognizes that they have gifts as well is the person who says, I'm going to work on it in combination with my gifts and let God use me and let God make me and I am willing to be available and I will show up to practice in the morning and I will put in the hard work even though I come from adverse circumstances. If this tragedy skipped a generation, we would not have heard of Daniel. He might have been a footnote in a scholar's book somewhere. Daniel was not born. He was made. And you are somebody that is gifted and talented, but without work, you will not become who you're meant to be. Without the adversity of your circumstances, you will not just become a You will not just become a Daniel like that. The adversity, and this is the second lesson. The second lesson is your adversity may be the very thing that turns you into Daniel. And if you're writing this in your notes, say it in first person. My adversity may turn me into a Daniel. Again, Daniels are not born. They are made. And your adversity is the refining fire, the furnace, quite literally in the book of Daniel. The thing that will make you who you are. It's the thing that will make you who you are. We'll continue in verse 5. And so the king appointed for these young, handsome, smart, everything. It's not fair. But anyway, he appoints for them a daily ration from the king's choice food and from the wine which he drank. And he appointed, that word appointed keeps coming up in chapter 1. He appointed that they should be educated for three years. So you're talking high school. So if they're 14, 15 years years old, you're talking high school. They would be educated for three years at the end of which they were to enter the king's personal service. The king's personal service. And so this word appointed, and so Nebuchadnezzar waves his magic wand and he says, I bid thee enter my personal service. You're going to be in high places. This is the Jewish blessing, 
which I believe it is also the Christian blessing. Jews have always been influential, even when they were not in power. Christians today also, I believe, carry that covenantal blessing. When in the New Testament it says, you will stand before princes and kings. You will stand before rulers. Some of you here, some of you here, young people, you don't know it, but you might stand before presidents, prime ministers one day. You might stand before the powerful. Some of you adults here are already in places of influence. Our denomination is going through strong change, big changes right now. Our president resigned after a very good term, but he was tired. The nominee, the new nominee for president of our denomination was just publicly announced. And one of the first people he called was me. Why would he call me, the president of our denomination? Because I'm the president of our Asian society and our denomination. And he wanted to make sure that he was working with all of the ethnic leaders. And I'm like, wow, I'm honored. And he's like, I want you to be my friend and I want you to pray for me. Friends, you will be appointed one day. If I can speak prophetically. Your adversity will make you a person of influence. You will be appointed. But I want you to remember who does the appointing. Wow, the president called me. And you get to stand in front of the most powerful, influential person. But remember who put that person in their place. Remember who is the one that appoints. Time and time again we see in chapter 1, Nebuchadnezzar being the one to appoint. But later on you'll see that God is the one that is really writing this narrative. Don't get all starry-eyed. Don't climb up in the lap of power and sit there comfortably and say, I've got it made. Be uncomfortable with power. Be uncomfortable with power. Infect yourself with this notion and sensibility while you are young that there is only one God in heaven and on earth and He is the one who deserves to be praised. And even the great, and keep your chin up, keep your chin up because you're a child of God. And as you sit before princes and rulers and kings, make sure you remember that you stand before one even greater before them. Don't sit too comfortably in the lap of power. Remember, this is the third lesson. Remember who does the appointing. Remember who is the one that is in control of the narrative. And I'll tell you a little secret. That will enable you to rest easier at night. When you think everything rests on my shoulders, when you think that everything's up to me, you cannot sleep. But when you realize that I surrender and God is the one who is writing this story, you sleep easy. Remember who does the appointing. You know, sometimes as you grow in life, I'll speak to adults here, as you find yourself in more and more hollowed places or speaking in more influential venues, it's important to almost kind of keep yourself humble, to remind yourself, keep yourself humble. How do we keep ourselves humble? I think there's some good instruction in the next few verses. 
there's a good way to subvert our own instinct to power. And as adults, we have to remember that. We have to subvert our own instinct to power. Now among them, in verse 6, from the sons of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. These are beautiful names. They are Hebrew names. They are soft. But what happened is the commander of the officials of the Babylonians assigned new names to them. No longer are you Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. From now you shall be Belteshazzar, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And you can hear the guttural of the Babylonian language there. And how, how many of you are familiar with those names? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Familiar names, Daniel in the fiery furnace. Famous characters. And there's something really, really interesting about these names. I really enjoyed studying Daniel in my own preparation. Um, in fact, I'm playing around with the idea of doing a book study just through the book of Daniel in the future. The names have significance. Why did they change their names? Why did they change their names? Think about that. They changed their names to keep them in their place. They changed their names to keep them in their place. So you're in high school. You go to high school and your name is, you know, Peter or your name is Zach. But then a bully comes along and he says he's going to call you something. And I'm going to call you doormat or something. Why? Because he does that to keep you in your place. And so the Babylonians changed their names. And this is interesting. You have a name like Mishael. Mishael, it's a beautiful name. Mishael, Mishael. Mishael literally translated. El is the Hebrew word for God. It's the Hebrew God. And Mishael means who is what God is. Who is like God. And the officials, the bullies that came along, the Babylonians says, your name is who is like God. Well, we're going to change your name from Mishael to Meshach. And what does Meshach mean? It means you go from who is like God, the beautiful Hebrew God, and instead we're calling you who is like Aku, the Babylonian God. Who is like what Aku is? And they change his name. You like that name? You like that, Mr. Aku? Who is like Aku? And he says, no, I hate that name. Well, tough. That's your name from now on. Meshach. Who is what Aku is? And that's what we're going to call you. And Meshach kind of puts his head down and he just grumbles and he just walks away. And then you have Abednego. Who knows that name? You've heard Abednego before. What a neat name. Abednego. Here's the thing about Abednego. Abednego. That word Abed, it's a Semitic word. It's used throughout the ancient Near East at that time. Abed means servant. Eved. Eved. And the thing about Eved, Eved Nigo. Who is Nigo? Who is Nigo? And you do a thorough study. There's nobody named Nigo, servant of Nigo. There is no Nigo or no Negan or no, there is no Nigo. There is, however, somebody named Nebo. Who is Nebo? Nebo is the second highest God in the Babylonian pantheon. The second highest God. And so they say, your name is no longer Azariah. Your name is servant of Nebo, the second highest god in the Babylonian pantheon. Do you like that name, servant of Nebo? 
And he mutters under his breath, servant of Nego. And the other three guys are <laughs> like, what did you say? Nothing, nothing. Servant of Nebo. Remember who you are. You're a servant of Nebo. Servant of Nego. <laughs> and they're all laughing. And scholars believe that the deliberate changing of this word Abednebo to Abednego is the Jewish way of profaning this idolatrous name Nebo. Friends, the world is going to tell you you are a child and a servant of the world. You're a servant of Nebo. But Scripture is going to be the thing that reprograms, that is going to tell you a different story. Ain't no way I'm going to be a servant of Nebo. Ain't no way at 14 years old I will not bow down to that name. And this fourth lesson that I want to share Young people, you're going to understand this language. Infect your OS with the Word of God now. Because when you get older, when you get older, the world is going to send you messages after messages that say you are a servant of Nebo. You are a child of Aku. And you have to be able to have the Word of God in your minds that say, no, I'm not. No, I'm not. Why? Because I am going to subvert that. I am going to protest that I am not a child if you don't know Scripture, by the time you are 18 years old, listen carefully, if you do not know the Bible, by the time you are 18 years old, you will not have the ammunition to, sub, to, to fight against those, those names. You will not have the ammunition to stand up. And when they call you a child of Nebo or a servant of Aku, you're going to cave in and you are going to program your minds that way. And you're going to say, that's, I guess, that, uh, what? Yeah. But hear it now. Abednego. Mishael. Daniel. Daniel. Hananiah. Remember your original name. It's like the Lion King. Remember. And when you have that moment when you break down, and you say, where is my life going? I have so much adversity. Remember your name as a child of God. You are not, you are not a child of Nebo or Nego. I was planning to conclude there, but I think I have time for one more. Because this is fun. And we'll wrap up with this last lesson. So, y'all got that, right? Lesson four. Infect your OS with the Word of God. We'll do one more because this one's fun. In verse 8, Daniel made up his mind that he would not defile himself with the king's choice food or with the wine which he drank. So he sought permission from the commander of the officials that he might not defile himself. Now, I'm a student of Hebrew. And um, when I read and when I prepare a sermon, I start off with the original language. And as I read this verse, I said, something, something is different here. Something does not belong. And I was right, and I felt good about that. It is the word choice food. That word choice food, that word choice food is not Hebrew. It's Persian. It's Persian. It's foreign. Immediately I recognized it as foreign to the narrative. It does not belong. It's kind of like at the closing scene of Avengers, the first Avengers. After they defeated all the forces of evil, they're sitting in a restaurant, and they're all eating what? Shawarma. And you know instinctively that shawarma is not an English word. You get the sense that it's exotic. There's something different about that word. Right away, I recognize that this word choice food 
literally, uh, choice food, the word, I'm going to tell you this because it's kind of funny, patbag, potbag, potbag. It's Persian in origin. And right away I recognize that this word is foreign. It's exotic. It doesn't belong. And the thing is, and this is the lesson, the last lesson, adverse contexts, young people, when you grow up, you are going to be in adverse context that is going to present you with pot bags. What are you going to do when you face these exotic temptations? Exotic temptations, adverse contexts come with exotic temptations. I'm not talking about foreign. I'm not talking about anything that's foreign is evil. What I'm talking about is whatever is new, whatever is novel. I've never tried that before. That's going to be interesting. I've never tasted pot bag before. This is going to be interesting. Pot bag. Everybody's doing it. Let's try out pot bag. There's this book that lots of moms these days like to have their tea. All the, you know, it's, it's a Dr. Seuss book. And it's called, what is it called? Oh, the places you'll go, right? When your kids turn 18, all oh, the things they'll try. Really, the things, the exotic things, the exotic temptations, and all the pot bags of the world that they're going to see. This is new, pot bag, choice food. Watch out for the exotic temptations in the adverse contexts. I really should conclude here because I want to make time for our town hall meeting. But we will come back to the rest of these lessons. Uh, we'll come back to the rest of these lessons after the retreat. But for now, I just want to reiterate these five lessons. You know, my own children, they, they roll their eyes whenever I, I, I lecture them. I say, life lesson number 3,461. Yes, five life lessons that I've shared, especially for the young people today. There was a reason why we had Family Sunday today, and we have the youth here. Because I wanted to speak specifically to you. Number one, life is not going to be perfect for you to succeed. And I just wish that, you know, all the lights would turn green and everything would be easy. Nope. I wish I would be dealt a perfect hand, you know. Full house. Wow. That doesn't happen. It is the adversity that will make you. That's the second lesson. The adversity is what is going to make you great. Not the ease of life, but the adversity. Third, remember when you get to your place, remember who does the appointing. I want you guys to remember this, guys and gals. I want you to remember when you get there, who is really in charge of the story. It is not the president. It is not the prime minister. Remember who does the appointing in your life. Who is in control of your life? That's the third lesson. Number four, how do you remember who does the appointing? You have to infect your OS with the Word of God now. You have to infect it now. By the time you are 18, read the Bible once through. Know the Psalms. Know what the New Testament says. Because by the time you are 18, you will be slammed with opposing messages left and right. People will be telling you you are a son of Aku or a daughter of Nebo. And unless you have the Word of God in your OS, by the time you are 18, you will not be able to stand. And finally, fifth and last, is these adverse contexts, they will have very exotic temptations. Things you've never seen before. Wow. Give me some of that pot bag. I wonder what that tastes like, that pot bag. 
I invite you to close your eyes. I want to give you some opportunity to reflect on one of those five lessons. If there was one that you said, oh, I got to jot this down. If there was one that you remember, if there was one that stood out, I'd like for you to reflect on that as the music plays in the background. I want to give you some time also to respond in prayer. God, I commit myself this year. I commit myself to read your scripture. I commit myself to use my difficulties and not be afraid of them. I commit myself, Lord. I commit myself to avoiding those exotic temptations. So talk to God. As we sang this morning, He wants to meet you. We will meet Him in this place. Return to your first love. Return to your first love, the place where you belong to Christ. And He says, I love you. Will you be my disciple? Return to that place. Consecrate yourself to Him. a special prayer for our young people here, people under the age of 18. I pray that you would instill your Bible, your scriptures in their lives, that whenever the narrative screams at them, telling them that they are something else, that they will never forget the higher calling, the first love, that they will know that they belong to you. I pray as the word comes alive within them, they would experience the affections and the devotions and the passion of belonging to the first love. I pray that their adversity would become springs, places of blessing, and that these places, instead of crushing them, would only be a place to climb up and go out, to go up further and deeper. Lord, Bless our congregation. We commit our town hall meeting to you, Lord. Whatever the process may be, we know you are in control. And we surrender it to your will. 
Lord, as we discuss as a community, as we go forward together, I pray that your hands would be in exceedingly heavy, uh, that your spirit would rest powerfully on us corporately. And so, Lord, moving forward together, I pray that you would bless our town hall meeting, that our spirits would come alive as we feel your spirit, not just disseminating information, but feeling the spirit behind. So, Lord, if it be your will, bless. pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. This has been a Woven Church podcast. Woven Church is a multi-ethnic missional church that meets in West Houston. We invite you to check us out on Sunday mornings at 10.30 a.m. To find out more, visit us online at www.wovenchurch.org. That's www.wovenchurch.org.